1791 and 1804, the oppressed people of Haiti carried out a revolution unlike any other in world history. It ushered in a new era. It was the beginning of the end for chattel slavery in the United States as well. In recent months, the people of Haiti have been back in the streets. Is it time for a second social revolution in Haiti? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker, and I'm joined by Eugene Perrier, who just got back from covering the uprisings in Haiti. Eugene is the host of the podcast, The Punch-Out, on Breakthrough News, where he has released daily dispatches from on the ground in Haiti. He's also the host of the weekly live show, The Freedom Side, on Breakthrough News, which airs every Thursday on YouTube.com forward slash breakthrough news at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Tonight's show will air on the ground footage from the uprisings and from the people's movement against the now dictator, President Moise. Eugene, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for joining. Eugene, as I mentioned in the intro, Haiti had one of those classic revolutions. I mean, there was the revolution in Haiti in 1791, in 1804, the first successful slave revolution in history, where the enslaved people actually not only temporarily defeated the enslavers, but they held on to state power. They created a new government of, by, and for former enslaved people. And this revolution, like the French Revolution of 1789 or the Russian Revolution of 1917 or the Chinese Revolution of 1949 or Cuba in 1959, not only impacted the people in the country, in Haiti or in France or Russia or China or Cuba, it changed politics. It changed the trajectory of politics, not only in the country and not even regionally. It changed global politics. I mean, history has placed Haiti at sort of a center, or the Haitian people have placed Haiti at the center of movements for social justice, and they are back, the Haitian people are back in the streets. Anyway, talk about why you went, where you went, what you saw. Yeah, well, you know, and I appreciate that, and the impact of the Haitian Revolution is, I mean, so monumental. Just to also mention as an aside here, the role that Haiti played in supporting Simone Bolivar when he had to flee the country in 1815 and then was able to return to what is now Venezuela and free those northern countries, the grand Colombian countries, Venezuela, Colombia, and so on, in a colonial struggle against the Spanish there with the assistance of the Haitian government of Alexander Petion, one of the founding, towering founding figures to emerge from the Haitian Revolution. And of course, the at least heavily rumored role of Haitian forces in stimulating slave revolts here in the United States. 
We were in Haiti for eight days recently, our Breakthrough News team, myself and Juan from Breakthrough News. You know, we did a lot and we saw a lot in the course of those eight days. We were mainly based out of Port-au-Prince, but we were also able to get out into the countryside in more of the northern part of the country. Port-au-Prince is more towards the southern part of the country on a place called Saint-Michel. So we were able to see, you know, the breadth and the depth of the country. We were able to, and I'll say more about all this, but just to give a bird's eye view, you know, we were able to visit in Port-au-Prince a number of the popular working class neighborhoods. We were able to, in the countryside, meet with peasants working the land and, and also producing different agricultural products about their ongoing struggles and the things that are happening more in the rural areas. We were able to speak with union workers who are working in the textile industry, which is sort of the biggest you know, quote unquote, industry there in Haiti, almost totally directed towards the United States, but one of the main sectors where people are sort of working in factories and things like that. And we were able to talk to workers about the situation there and the situation for their organizing, as well as just seeing generally what was going on in the course of the popular movement. We were, of course, at the mass demonstrations on Sunday and Monday that were in commemoration of the 34th anniversary of the Constitution, the current Constitution from 1987, which came in in the wake of the fall of the Duvalier dictatorship in the mid-1980s. And in the course also of everywhere, many of the other places where we were throughout the week, we were also able to meet with popular movements where they do their sort of day-to-day work, but who are also involved in mobilizing in these huge mass protests that have been happening since January. So, you know, we were really able to get a very clear sense, I felt, of the current state of affairs in Haiti, which is, you know, very tense in many ways and on the precipice of something big. That's how it feels, even though quite what that is, is not 100% clear. But, you know, Haiti is a country that is deemed to be poor, but in fact is very rich. But people there are very poor because of the style in which the the country is run by the elites there, which is almost all the wealth is extracted for the benefit of Western, primarily US, but also Canada and Europe and also, you know, Japan as well and a few other countries. That's where most of the wealth is going. And then the elites in Haiti, by and large, just serve as an intermediary type role and take their cream off the top of these deals. And you have a situation where a quarter of the country is living in extreme poverty. You know, I think something like 60% of people are living in some form of poverty. The informal sector is the main style of how people are, or many people are getting by. I mean, there's all sorts of estimates of what unemployment are, it's hard to even tell because, you know, formal employment is not really as big of a factor there. There's huge issues with food insecurity and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, uh, it's not because there aren't the resources to take care of these things. I mean, for instance, you know, there's food on the street, but not everyone has money. You know, if you have enough money, you can buy a Porsche. There's Porsche dealerships there, but most people don't have access to clean water and many people don't have access to electricity and almost no one has access to consistent electricity except for people who have the money to have, you know, generators and things like that, which of course requires you to make extra investments. So, you know, that I think is maybe our biggest takeaway is that the current situation and the current government there, this this dictator, Jovenel Moise, who has overstayed his constitutional mandate, the anger towards him is really rooted in that reality. I mean, people are very angry, of course, 
about corruption, which is the big issue people maybe have heard about, but they're angry about corruption because billions of dollars that were stolen by Moyes and his predecessor Martelli and the PHTK government were development funds, many of them coming from Venezuela. So there's a direct connection between corruption and the sad state of social services and, and public affairs. And then also a keen understanding of how the being completely under the boot of the United States, uh, both now and, and you could say this has been historically a challenge for Haiti to emerge from under the heavy handed influence of US imperialism, how it plays a negative distorting role in the ability of the country to push back on some of these trends of lack of infrastructure, lack of social services, persistent poverty, and to really take the wealth of the country and spread it around in a way that is much more equitable and much more positive for people. And there's a lot of consciousness about that. And because of the history of the Haitian revolution, I think a lot of pride and a lot of understanding of that history and what it means that people who are sort of average everyday people can take the reins into their own hands and make change. And I think that's why you've seen the protests have been so persistent and so strong over a number of months with many hundreds of thousands of people. Just about every sector of society is coming out against Moise. He's very, very isolated in the population, but because of the support, you know, from the West, but I, you know, I would also say a large section of the international community is basically quiet on Haiti. It's pretty shameful. And historically, even some of the so-called multipolar countries have played a very complicated and often negative role in the context of Haiti. So the sort of international context very heavily favors this regime being able to stay in power. So we got a good sense of that. We got a good sense of what's going on, but we also got a good sense of the fact that, you know, there are many, many people who are willing to take to the streets and continue to push forward. And I don't think that that is going to abate anytime soon. Eugene, 11 years ago, there was the massive major earthquake, 7.0 on the magnitude scale. It killed over 230,000 people in Haiti. I mean, can you imagine 230,000? And just the year before that, former President Bill Clinton was appointed UN Special Envoy to Haiti. That was like eight months before the earthquake. And Clinton was tasked with reinvigorating the country's moribund economy, as they put it. And that was after big storms that had taken place in 2008. A lot has been written about disaster capitalism. Let's talk about that in the context of Haiti and also talk about the role of Bill and Hillary Clinton. Yeah, well, you know, I'm glad you laid that out because certainly the history of that earthquake, I mean, there really is a before and after reality to it. 1.6 million people, I believe, were displaced as well as the number of people who were killed and economic, I mean, homes were leveled, businesses. You still see some of the impact of that. And of course, you know, so many people in the context of trying to find a way to rebuild after that, it just constantly comes up and, and it really is such a major piece of Haitian history. And, and yes, I think that it's a you know, you could argue that Haiti already, in a way, was almost a form of disaster capitalism before the earthquake. I mean, the sort of approach to economic activity in Haiti is extremely predatory and extremely based on just sort of brute force extraction of wealth and, you know, lowest common denominator, worst 
kind of sweatshop condition exploitation of labor and sort of using the advantages of the long history of the Duvalier dictatorship and others and not really promoting any real development in the country and there being these long, deep, persistent problems in terms of people's living standards to you know force people into these highly exploitive industries and to create an imperative around you know, any form of economic activity, because no matter how, you know, terrible it is when there's not that much going on, you know, you're able to exploit that to draw people into these, you know, gold mines and all the different elements, force people to sell their crops and their goods more on the international market rather than the focus on internal food security, because it's the only way to get some form of money to survive in some way, shape or form. But certainly after the earthquake, I mean, the role of the Clintons, I think you could say is huge. I mean, obviously, Hillary Clinton oversaw the, I think it was $4.4 billion that was appropriated by the US Congress. The Clinton Global Initiative raised billions of dollars. I mean, whatever happened with any of this money, I have no idea. I think in America, we know Haiti so much because of the earthquake and even a little bit before, you know, the commercials that come on TV, the Red Cross, donate to Haiti. We're doing all these things in Haiti. There's all these, you know, uh, charities, you know, Sean Penn was down there. Wyclef Jean is doing something. And I think we all have in our minds this image of these billions of dollars of development aid. And worth noting, Bill Clinton, I should also note, was on the advisory council for, you know, Michelle Martelly's government, as well as, you know, was also very close to many of the other governments that have been there, Rene Preval and others in terms of his influence. So the influence of the Clintons is pervasive, but the point being, there's basically no evidence that any of this money had any impact at all. And so in the context of what we know about the Petro-Carib money, which was stolen and was the impetus for this cycle of protest against the Moyes government in 2018, when people found that this $3 billion has been stolen, it's pretty obvious that the vast majority of development aid that has been sent to Haiti is not actually being used for development. And it's being used really obviously for the enrichment of a small set of elites, which means that the people who were in charge charge have to have known this. I mean, it seems that there's really no way for there to have billions of dollars flow into a country and the development doesn't seem to happen. And somehow no one was aware that that was taking place. And I think that that is indicative of the role that the U.S. has played, you know, in Haiti over time in the fact that there is this huge show that they're doing so much. You have former presidents, big celebrities, everyone get involved. But really, it was all just going to continue to push forward the exact same type of economic setup that you'd had before. And in fact, it was used to expand in some ways the sweatshop economy that exists inside of Haiti, the expansion of the industrial parks and things like that, that were also happening. And really the promotion of this idea. And there's something called the HOPE Act that governs tariff-free textile and other some other small manufacturing imports from Haiti into the United States. So it becomes kind of a pass-through for capital from around the world, like Taiwan, other people from the United States, rich Haitian bourgeoisie, and they're able to make quite a bit of money importing into the United States, mainly in contracts with big companies of all types, and including, by the way, some in the U.S. military industrial complex. They do some manufacturing around that. And there was expansion of those zones and things that were happening at the same time. So you see that it was really a solidification, the post-earthquake era of this highly, highly neoliberal form of capitalism inside of Haiti, and not only a solidification of it, an expansion of it. And obviously, this so-called development aid was really used to enrich this sort of small sector of elites. And I think that that has always been 
the nature of U.S. policy towards Haiti really since the very beginning, which is to try to keep Haiti down and to try to make sure that the great riches, and there's obviously since the 1600s been great riches coming from Haiti, to make sure that their value basically is not primarily enjoyed by the Haitian people. Eugene, after the collapse or the implosion of the Soviet Union and the other socialist bloc countries in Eastern and Central Europe, that was in the late 1980s and up until 1990, 1991, the West, and especially led by the United States, but it wasn't just the United States, it was also Britain, France, Germany, the major capitalist imperialist powers undertook this massive campaign using IMF and other international financial institutions called structural adjustment. This was the era of real neoliberal acceleration, meaning state assets were privatized. Foreign capitalists and foreign imperialists could then move in and sweep up valuable or potentially very profitable sectors of what had been formerly state-owned or public-owned property, especially in the emerging world. Within about 10 years, perhaps 90%, maybe 86% of the people of the world lived under some kind of what was called then a structural adjustment regime, meaning state assets, public property were put up for basically a fire sale, especially by countries that were indebted. And it became very you know, lucrative for the powerful, for the most important and most powerful capitalists. There was in Haiti during that same time period mass privatization of state-run assets, which in a way turned Haiti into like a Caribbean sweatshop via like an export-led sort of cheap labor model. And of course, the elites in Haiti, the bourgeoisie, were able to gain control over and make profit from formerly public property. But it also had the effect of diminishing or in some ways eviscerating Haiti's ability to be self-reliant because with state-run or public-run properties like the cement factory, for instance, it allowed Haiti to have some element of self-reliance. But once privatized and once the comprador bourgeoisie just becomes an extension of foreign imperialism, that capacity for the indigenous economy to provide some cushion disappears. Let's just talk about how that impacted Haiti. Yeah, I mean, I think that Haiti as a country was or has been, you know, one of maybe the biggest victims of the sort of international trade regime in the context of the unipolar era. I think it is true that the elites there in Haiti are 100% oriented towards U.S. imperialism in terms of how they approach the issue of the use of productive assets in any way, shape, or form. I mean, certainly the textile industry has, you know, long roots, I mean, especially into the 80s there, but, you know, really took off in the 1990s and was heavily promoted by the United States. And there, you know, a number of countries around the world that are sort of in a similar situation in terms of their sort of that role in the production chain. And I think that it's affected Haiti in a major way because it means that really like quote unquote manufacturing and to the extent that there is any sort of quote unquote industrial activity and the investment of capital that's coming from the elites and from the international community into 
any form of industrial activity is then 100% oriented towards just an export industry, mainly light industry, and has no real relationship to what the needs are of the people in the country. I mean, you know, for instance, talking to people who are working there in the textile industrial parks, one of the things that people noted to me is that, you know, they don't have the right to housing and they don't have access to good housing. Their kids don't have access to good education. There's no I mean, there's transportation, but there's no public transportation really in Haiti. And so uh, it's very expensive to get to and from work. But of course, they're not getting any sort of subsidy and they're not making any overtime, by the way. And sometimes working 10, 11, 12 hours in a day in you know a factory. So very excruciating long hours with no overtime. But it makes the point that even though you know they're going to work in a factory job, an industrial plant, that what the work that they're actually doing has no real relationship to their own ability to survive and thrive in in the country. And that is where a huge amount of capital formation and investment is going into the country. So the real impact of it is, is it means that the bulk of the resources that are available that could potentially be oriented towards helping improve the lives of people in the country are in fact going only towards industries and areas by which there are profits to be made shipping something to some other part of the world. And the same is true when it comes to agricultural produce. I mean, you know, really the impact of agribusiness is huge. I mean, we had the opportunity to talk to some, you know, peasants who were fighting against land grabs from a major, well, industrialist financier, Andy Apaid, who's actually a US citizen, believe it or not, but is one of the biggest business people in Haiti, who's stealing this land basically to grow stevia for Coca-Cola, thousands of acres. So, you know, the way they're presenting it, the PHTK government is, well, this is actually good for those people because they're going to be able to get jobs on these large farms and get paid in cash. And then also the farmers that are left, I guess, the people whose land they didn't steal are then going to be able to allegedly, I mean, this is all not going to happen, but this is what they're saying, are allegedly going to be able to benefit from improvement on the land in terms of agricultural extension services. So it'll make everything, you know, so much better for them. And so, again, you have the primary resources that could be used to develop the country, not being focused on how do you build food security inside of Haiti. And by the way, the land that they're stealing was being run by a women's led cooperative that was doing sustainable agriculture focused on building food security for people in the country itself, not fake sugar for Coke, you know, is instead being used like the only development that can happen is in relationship to these export industries and in relationship to sending things abroad. And there's no real thought, or at least the thought is dismissed, of using these resources in a different way. And so I think the impact of the sort of broader eddies and currents that Haiti is caught up in vis-a-vis the role it plays in the broader, you know, quote unquote, global labor and product chain is just so deeply exploitative and so deeply linked to the fact that no development really seems to take place outside of the context of some very specific entity by and large, which is producing wealth primarily for people outside of the country. It's such an important point, Eugene, that Haiti or any country, and especially an emerging country, a country that emerges from either colonialism or slavery or both, it's impossible to chart an independent path by yourself. You're subject to the impact of the global politics, the global economy, And this has been the curse for Haiti since the beginning. I mean, there was this amazing revolution, 1791 to 1804, the enslaved people become the new government, and yet almost immediately subject to such international pressure that it profoundly, I would say in the most profound possible way, 
impacts Haiti's future development. One, Haiti agreed under extreme pressure to pay reparations to the former French slave owners for the loss of their property, meaning the freedom of the Haitian people. And unable to pay their debt, Haiti actually started borrowing money from French banks for the first two payments that was in the 1830s. And of course, unable because they couldn't sell enough to pay the debt to France, the former slave owners. And of course, France got very, very rich based on the exploitation of Haiti. The French king sent an expedition with 12 warships to Haiti in 1838. And then a quote, get this, Treaty of Friendship was signed. (laughs) Yeah, with the 12 warships off the coast. And the debt was renegotiated. It was reduced. But still, Haiti kept having to pay and pay and pay. And since the revolution, Haiti has never been forgiven economically or politically or diplomatically for having created this model of insurrection and freedom for people who had been formerly enslaved. Let's just talk about some of that history. And again, even today, 2021, Haiti's not free from that. Yeah, I think the overall debt that Haiti was supposed to owe to France after independence was like $21 billion. I mean, just a huge sum of money. And I I think ever since then, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the other sort of trap of international finance capital, right, is that in the search for high returns, people look for quote unquote risky investments, which often means when there's a lot of money out there, they'll lend a lot of money out. Of course, you got to pay that money back. Um, But, you know, it's always blamed on these different countries. And it's never really pointed out how a lot of this aid and so-called loans and development things are really pressed on people, not something that they necessarily seek out and often on terms that are not favorable, especially the IMF and others. And I think that Haiti has for years been victimized by the impact of, you know, not only debt, but also political interference, I think is the underlying factor there. I mean, it's not even, I think, necessarily just the policies that have been imposed, but the fact that many of the governments have gone along with turning the worst results of that in on their own people. I mean, certainly... I mean, the U.S. has openly occupied Haiti in 1915 for a number of years, I believe, into the 1930s. Obviously, it's played a malign role, you know, for most of the second half of the 20th century in backing the dictatorships of Papa Doc and Baby Doc, which were, you know, the arch pro-imperialist, neo-colonial, kleptocratic style of government that never did anything really for the average Haitian person, but certainly uh, enriched a number of individuals. And then, of course, they played a key role in removing the government of President Aristide twice, who was trying to pursue you know, more of a developmentalist agenda in Haiti and to perhaps use some of the wealth to benefit people. So preventing in the modern era things that happened, promoting unbelievable policies. I mean, when Clinton was the president, he expanded a program of selling surplus crops from the U.S. to Haiti, primarily rice from Arkansas farmers. Funny how that happens, right? And it destroyed the rice industry in Haiti. Thousands of people lost their land, lost their jobs, but there was nowhere for them to go because there was no industrialization or anything else happening at a pace 
space that could absorb them to the complete destruction of people's livelihoods as well. And, you know, we see it now with the Moyes regime. I mean, I think that without a doubt, the long-term reality of Haiti has been that there has been a massive amount of meddling. I mean, it's not really talked about as much in sort of, I think, the broader historical piece, but a massive amount of meddling by the United States and by others to disorganize the politics of Haiti and to make sure that Haiti, you know, frankly, doesn't become another Cuba. And that really that the legacy of the Haitian Revolution, which is proud, but also radical, does not become the basis for a, you know, revolutionary government in some other time. I mean, certainly in the post-colonial era of the 1950s and 1960s, this is you know, the reason why they're supporting Papa Doc. And I think now in the context of a global upsurge and global turmoil, you have the same thing with the PHTK government and the U.S. wanting to support them because I think there is a lot of fear that not only the history is inspirational, but that there's been so much since then that people have been built up to resent seeing how their country has been kept down and turned out, that undoubtedly a government that was true to the Haitian people would take a much more hostile attitude towards these foreign powers and a much less pliant attitude towards these policies of international loans, international debts, so-called tariff-free trade, which sounds good, but usually is just a trap for sweatshop labor. And, you know, these unbelievably invasive policies that have allowed international companies to come in and really do the maximum level of exploitation inside of Haiti. Eugene, final question, and it's a compound question. It's got a couple of different parts to it. But we know that when Haiti had its revolution in 1804, it sent shock waves through the American capitalist establishment, especially in the South. The idea that the enslaved people could rise up and kill their slave owners and take hold of the property and create a new government and sustain that hold on power nothing threw fear into the hearts of the American slaveocracy like this. This is the thing they always did fear. This is why America always retained right from its origin, right from its beginning, since the beginning of capitalism, which was premised on the enslavement of kidnapped African people, this kind of massive violence and social control directed against the oppressed because of precisely this fear. So it was like the ultimate nightmare. And for black people in North America, it obviously would be a point of inspiration and was a point of inspiration and a point of contributing to resistance and rebellion. Now, the U.S. refused to recognize the Haitian government until 1862. Abraham Lincoln was the first to recognize it during the middle of the Civil War. And later, Frederick Douglass, a famed abolitionist and freedom fighter, was the U.S ambassador to Haiti in the early 1890s, right prior to his death. And I encourage our listeners to find Frederick Douglass's speech in 1893 in Chicago about Haiti. But the reason I say all this, Eugene, is that the struggle for freedom and equality and justice and liberation in North America, in the United States, has always been tied to what happens in Haiti. And of course, there is a large Haitian community in certain cities inside the United States, but outside of just having an emigre community or a diaspora community, there is also this profound link between the struggle for freedom among African-American people and the Haitian people. When you were there in Haiti, 
and reflecting upon it as you come back. And now you're going to be doing programming on Breakthrough News even tonight about it. Just talk about how the significance of this, this is the internationalization in many ways of the struggle against oppression. Yeah, I mean, I think the Haitian Revolution's connection, I mean, obviously, I think the impact of Toussaint Louverture is probably as well known among Black Americans in the context of the history of slave revolts. I don't think most people consider that much of a difference from, say, the Nat Turner Revolt and the Haitian Revolution. I think the connection there has always been so deep. And at any moment when there's really big upsurge in the Black movement in America, I think you see that the Haitian Revolution often becomes a reference point in the historical, social, and political references that are being made to sort of the glorious past of liberation. Of course, you know, when Haiti was struggling, for instance, in the early 1930s against the U.S.-backed occupation and neocolonial-style governments, it was, you know, U.S. communists primarily, including people like Cyril Briggs and William Patterson and James Ford and others who were playing a big role in rallying support for Haiti in the United States and rallying support for this radical movement that was rising on the islands in the late 20s and the early 1930s then. And I think now, you know, you get a good sense of that connection going both ways too when you're there in Haiti. I mean, there's a Dr. Martin Luther King Avenue, there's a street named after John Brown. There's one named after Charles Sumner, Jose Marti as well. And of course, the revolutionary legacy is all over the place in terms of the heroes of the revolution and all the things that are named after them, whether we're talking Desaines, Louverture, uh, Petion, and so on and so forth. And that is a very prominent piece. But even in the context of meeting with some people, for instance, in the rural areas, you know, they were referencing their struggle in relationship to the George Floyd situation. And one of the things we were able to put out on Breakthrough News was a beautiful mural we saw in commemoration of George Floyd down there in Port-au-Prince. And certainly in the context of a lot of conversations I was having with people, you know, people are following and aware of what is going on in the United States for sure. They were certainly aware of what took place in the uprising last year. And I think have some level of confidence, believe it or not, that people in the United States can move U.S. policy on Haiti. And I think that's one thing people really asked us to bring back was the desire to have people in the United States do more to tell the U.S. to stop backing this Moyes regime. And I think that the sort of confidence people have in calling on the American people to take action is because they see people moving and they have at least some understanding that something is happening and that a lot of it is rooted in the Black community. And I think that historically, we've always seen, you know, one of the reasons that countries like Haiti can cause so much fear and strike so much fear into the U.S. imperialist structure and going back to the old slaveocracy, as you pointed out, is the idea that these sort of radical governments in the Black Caribbean, because of the very similar shared slave history with Black America, create strong connections and powerful connections for people in this country about, you know, how they form their own ideological perception of things. I mean, why was Grenada invaded by Ronald Reagan? What possible threat could Grenada pose to the United States? It certainly couldn't be physical, right? Like it could only be ideological. And I think the fear of that impact is very similar to the fear that the slaveocracy had, that the rising of a popular movement of ex-slaves showed their doom. And it did indeed show their demise. And they did indeed go down in a fiery war 
with uprisings of 180,000 slaves playing the key role in their own destruction. And I think today, in the context of such a decrepit, destructive, terrible, exploitative capitalist system, to see the people of Haiti rise up and break with this long legacy of neo-colonialism and dependency and restore this beautiful legacy of revolution and of heroism and of popular people making history in their own right and changing the world for the better, that that will have powerful echoes here in the United States as well and that that could be deeply problematic for them. So I think that connection is very strong and very palpable and pretty much everywhere I went, you know, people are obviously very angry at the United States government for backing Moyes, but there was no real question that that was, you know, not the exact relationship or position of the American people. And people feel very strongly that the connection between the Haitian people struggling and the American people struggling can make a change. The socialist program will continue to focus on and give coverage to the ongoing struggle for justice in Haiti. You've been listening to Eugene Perrier. He is the host of the podcast, The Punch-Out on Breakthrough News, where he has released daily dispatches from on the ground in Haiti. He's also the host of the weekly live show, The Freedom Side on Breakthrough News, which airs every Thursday on youtube.com forward slash breakthrough news at 8 p.m. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.